Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of Insurance Uncovered. Yamit's podcast is your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. This week's episode is once again sponsored by New England Asset Management. I'm your host, Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering proposed criteria for evaluating the U.S. approach to group capital, why NAMIC has concerns about the international comparison. Plus, Congressman Andy Barr outlines the House Financial Services Committee agenda for 2023 and what key issues could impact the insurance industry. But first, NAMIC's policy team is back from Portland, Oregon, where the National Association of Insurance Commissioners hosted its summer meeting last week. The team took special interest in a discussion with the International Association of Insurance Supervisors Secretariat on the comparability assessment between the IAIS International Capital Standard and the U.S. System's aggregation method. NAMIC feels the international comparison between the systems is ill-defined and wrongly holds the ICS standard above all others. NAMIC Senior Vice President of State and Policy Affairs Aaron Collins says the association has significant concerns with the proposed criteria for evaluating comparability. The comparability assessment pits one framework and methodology against the other and incorrectly deems the ICS as the gold standard that others have to strive to emulate. The IIS should abandon the draft criteria and instead focus on the practical aspects that the aggregation method affords to supervisors. Things like gaining an an appreciation for the jurisdictional differences, supporting the exchange of information between supervisors, and providing regulators with a better understanding of insurers' risk management framework and their solvency situation in an insurance group. Applying the same capital standard to companies from very different regulatory environments with very different economic and political goals will not produce comparable results about capital insolvency. For a full summary of the NAIC meeting's highlights, NAMIC members can search our member advisories online at NAMIC.org. Well, several NAIC officers will take the main stage at NAMIC's annual convention next month in Dallas, Texas. NAMIC CEO Neil Aldridge will lead a panel discussion with NAIC President Dean Cameron, NAIC President-elect Clora Lindley Myers, as well as Commissioners John Gottfried and Andrew Mays. The group will talk about insurance trends, regulatory challenges, and barriers to competitive markets. This year's convention will also feature an economy's power session led by Brian Bolio, as well as a keynote presentation on how to bolster your organization's cybersecurity defenses from independent security evaluators, Ted Harrington. Hard to believe there's less than a month to go, but there is still time to register your team for the big event. Find the complete agenda and registration information for NAMIC's 2022 annual convention online at NAMIC.org. In Washington, Congressman Steve Scalise says he is fighting to reform the National Flood Insurance Program following a premium increase for Louisiana homeowners and resistance from some on Capitol Hill. The House Republican whip says FEMA's new risk rating 2.0 pricing methodology is causing many in his home state to pay more and subsequently drop their coverage. FEMA Meanwhile, says its pricing methodology that took effect last October is designed to deliver rates that are fairer, easier to understand, and better reflect an individual property's flood risk. 
For years, NAMIC has advocated for long-term NFIP reforms to create a financially stable program that can help millions of Americans who are now facing growing flood risks. The program has been reauthorized a whopping 19 times since the end of 2017, with some extensions as short as just a few weeks. The NFIP is currently scheduled to expire at the end of next month. NAMIC works closely with the House Financial Services Committee on a variety of federal issues that affect property casualty insurers. So on today's Unscripted, we're happy to welcome a member of Congress who serves as the ranking member of the Monetary Policy Subcommittee. NAMIC SVP of Federal and Political Affairs Jimmy Grandy sits down with U.S. Rep. Andy Barr to discuss the House Financial Services Committee's 2023 agenda and what some of the key issues are that could impact the industry going forward. Congressman, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. We certainly appreciate your time. Great to be with you, Jimmy, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to all of NAMIC members and uh, appreciate your leadership within the organization. Thanks, Andy. Um, and no pressure, but you know, this is the first time our uh, CEO has ever let me guest host the podcast. So I'm hoping that we're, we're particularly interesting today. Great. Well, let's begin the conversation. Let me dive right into possibly the most pressing issue facing all Americans today, inflation. You know, as you well know more than anybody, you know, current inflation levels are at record highs. You know, we haven't seen them in over 40 years. Uh, you know, the impact on everyday Americans is crippling in many ways, but the impact on both NAMIC members and our policyholders is profound. You know, high inflation significantly impacts replacement costs uh, for all insure, for all losses in the insurance industry. Uh, you know, and I believe I saw you on the news over the weekend uh, talking about how Congress is so out of touch and focusing on so many other topics um, when they really ought to be focused more uh, singularly on inflation. Can you take just a moment to discuss how inflation is impacting your constituents, your district specifically, but even more broadly, the economy? Yes, uh, and and in fact, Congress and the administration, I think, are out of touch when they focus on topics that the American people really don't care about. Inflation and the economy is really top of mind as I travel my district in central and eastern Kentucky. Uh, the cost of living is up across the board, and Americans, uh, American households and businesses are paying more for virtually everything. And of course, as you pointed out, this profoundly impacts uh, the liabilities for the insurance uh, industry when replacement costs are increasing. So uh, this has been um, a precipitous increase in prices over the last year. Uh, the cause of it, I think, is um, twofold, monetary policy errors, but uh, also fiscal policy errors. Uh, and we are at a 40-year high on the CPI, on the Consumer Price Index. Um, uh, we've had a slight easing from 9.1% uh, as the rate of inflation year over year to, I think now we're back to uh, down, quote unquote, down to 8.5%. But remember, when the, the rate of inflation is declining, it doesn't mean that prices are not still increasing. It just means the rate of increase is, is going down. So prices are still going up. This inflation is taking a huge, huge hit. Uh, it, it comes with a huge hit on household and business purchasing power. Uh, 
a Wharton uh, School uh, study that was recently released uh, projected that uh, this year, American households are paying uh, over $5,000 more for the same goods and services that they were paying for a year before. And the anecdotal uh, feedback is alarming. Um, you know, uh, whether it's my painter who says that a cost of a, a can of paint is, you know, 20 to $50 more than it was, um, you know, a year and a half ago, or of course, the price at the pump uh, skyrocketing to nearly $5 a gallon when on the day President Biden took office, it was uh, nationwide on average $2.39 to, to fill up uh, uh, your truck or your car with regular unleaded gasoline. Uh, that's come down a little bit, but it hasn't come down because of uh, releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It's because of de demand effects. Because the costs increase so much, uh, demand has declined accordingly, and, and that's why you see a, a, a slight easing in gas prices. Uh, fuel prices, though, have not come down in in terms of coal, oil, natural gas, home heating costs, utility costs, or diesel. And so that's impact impacted the farm economy. But but what caused all of this? It's a it's a classic supply demand mismatch. You had excess spending on the fiscal policy side, excess spending that created uh, excess uh, overspending created excess demand, and then on the supply side. The threat of higher taxes means less uh, capital expenditures, less business investment. That That is an impediment to repairing supply chain bottlenecks. And of course, a war on domestic energy production and and um, energy is uh, goes into everything, manufacturing, transportation, that that goes down the supply chain and ends up um, at the at the consumer level, the retail level prices increase. Um, because um, the cost of fuel is is so much higher. That is because we have constrained the supply of energy. And it's not just, um, Jimmy, it's, it's not just because of uh, the fact that we're producing 3 million fewer barrels of oil in the United States a day, um, fewer than what we were producing two years ago. Uh, it's um, it's also because of the um, the war against and the and the cancellation of of energy infrastructure projects like the Keystone XL pipeline. The fact that regulators are holding up 4,400 drilling permits and impeding the construction of new refineries. But um, to conclude my thought on the supply demand mismatch, the ground zero of this um, of this effort to constrain domestic supply of energy is the politicization of the financing of energy. Uh, this uh, environmental, social, and governance movement, uh, and also the weaponization of bank regulation to choke off capital to fossil energy companies. Uh, energy production, exploration and production is a very capital-intensive business. Uh, there is a long recovery period in terms of recovering the cost of capital. And so that lack of certainty when financial regulation is weaponized against the energy sector, both in terms of securities regulation and in bank regulation, means that um, production goes down, domestic production goes down. So ESG plays a role in this. And then the final point is uh, the monetary policy mistakes that compounded these fiscal policy errors. And what I mean by that is the Fed was behind the curve. Uh, they uh, fell into this uh, a narrative from the from the Treasury Secretary and from the Biden administration that that rising prices were transitory. And so that they kept 
not only did they keep interest rates too low for too long and they delayed their tightening, uh, but uh, they also uh, continued to engage in massive quantitative easing, $120 billion of bond buying through March of 2022. And that uh, contributed significantly to excess monetary stimulus, overly accommodated monetary policy that was fuel on the inflationary fire. And now they're playing catch up. And I believe uh, because inflation is persistent, certainly not transitory, but persistent, and because of the significance of these errors, these policy errors, I think the tightening project is going to be much more painful uh, and longer in duration uh, in order to beat back inflation than I think the financial markets anticipate. Thanks, Andy. That is so insightful. Um, let me stick with inflation for a, one more second. You know, so sounds like you know you very clearly believe that it, it wasn't this inevitable result of the pandemic and supply chain, and it sounds like there were uh, a lot of um, policy-driven decisions that may have helped create the inflation that we have today. From your perspective. You know, if we look going, look, start look looking forward. So we have an election coming up. You know, there seems to be a lot of optimism that uh, the Republicans might have some success and and take over the House of Representatives. What does Washington have to do over the next three, six, nine months to help pull us out of it? And and how quickly will we be able to come out of it? You know, are we going to be looking at you know inflationary prices in an economy for another year? Well, first and foremost, uh, politicians in Washington, uh, both in the executive branch and the Congress, um, need to recognize the pain, acknowledge the pain of the American people. Some seem to be putting their heads in the sand and for some time. I mean, they first called it transitory, then they blamed it on Putin. They blamed it on the pandemic. They blamed it on everything other than their own policies and not recognizing, acknowledging what is the true cause here. I think is a is a is a problem. Now, obviously, the pandemic uh, had a role in disrupting uh, supply chains. Obviously, uh, the war in Ukraine has a role to play on global energy markets. But if you cannot acknowledge the massive contribution of errors in policy here at home, both at the Fed and in Congress and the administration, to create excess demand and constrain supply all at once. Uh, then you're not going to be able to fix the problem. So um, we are where we are. The Fed needs to continue its aggressive tightening project, in my opinion. That obviously has ramifications for the insurance industry, investment decision making, and the like. It has major uh, implications in terms of recovery of the financial markets. Uh, investors obviously um, uh, don't like to see aggressive tightening because of the disruption that it creates in asset prices. Uh, but nevertheless, there's a lot of Americans, over 50% of Americans, who have no assets. They're not invested in the stock market. And the decline in their purchasing power is a real problem. I think to set the stage for long-term recovery in the equity markets, the financial markets, you need to have clear price signals. And that's why the Fed needs to, 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 be, res to be resilient, to be persistent, uh, and have some fortitude in the face of criticism to get these prices down. Um, but uh, dealing with the demand side of the equation is not enough. Uh, there, needs to be, um, there needs to be a reversal of these fiscal policy errors 
to fix the supply side. Um, on, on the one hand, Congress um, needs to stop th threatening to raise taxes. We just did. I mean, I voted against it, but the Democrats in a partisan reconciliation bill voted to raise taxes on job producers, energy producers, uh, and people saving for retirement in the middle of a recession. Recession is defined by two consecutive quarters of negative growth, regardless of what the White House says the definition should be. Um, and so that is not a that is not a sound strategy for encouraging business investment and repairing the supply side and dealing with constraints on energy production. And that's the other part of the solution. The other part of the solution is we need to start producing energy again in this country. Stop, stop the overregulation of the energy sector, um, and stop subsidizing speculative, uh, unreliable sources of energy. Um, Everybody understands that climate is an issue, uh, but for the life of me, I've never understood why starving um, energy companies, innovative entrepreneurial energy companies in the United States, which are the reservoirs of the best scientists in the world on the ish on these issues, why we would deprive them of capital to innovate, that's beyond me. So I think we need more, not less, financing into the into American energy companies. Uh, ESG is very distortionary from that standpoint. And so I think a reversal of these policies is important. Um, stop the spending and then unleash American energy production and investment in American energy uh, to deal with the supply side. Fortitude on the part of the Fed, that uh, the combination of those policies will start bringing prices down. Well, I, I think I uh, comfortably speak on behalf of NAMIX membership and we wish you all the luck in the world as we go into next year and trying to bring some um, sanity to our fiscal policy and to uh, help uh, alleviate some of the uh, new challenges that uh, businesses uh, and our members are facing due to the inflation. It, you know, um, to pivot, you mentioned um, climate and ESG and um, you've been one of the most vocal leaders in, in pushing back on this, uh, the recent uh, Securities and Exchange Commission's climate disclosure rule, which would require public companies to disclose whether any climate-related risk is reasonably likely to have a material impact on the registrant. And, uh, you know, forgive me if this isn't correct, but public companies already have to report on issues deemed material to their businesses, right? So if that's true, you know, uh, does it seem like the SEC is trying to have a runaround to try to legislate that any climate risk must be material information for investors? Well, the truth of the matter is um, this kind of information is not material to, to many investors. FINRA, in concert with the University of Chicago, did a, a study uh, a survey of retail investors and found that only 21% of retail investors, even in the United States, even know what ESG stands for. Uh, most of the demand for ESG sustainable investing is coming from institutional investors who do not accurately represent uh, the interests of retail investors. There needs to be a, a refocusing on the part of investment advisors, asset managers, ERISA plan sponsors, uh, uh, on the fiduciary obligation of maximizing returns as opposed to um, po uh, politics. And a lot of this ESG is about politics. It's not about maximizing returns. And, and from that standpoint, ESG is very distortionary 
And the SEC's proposed rulemaking, a 534-page monstrosity, will actually exacerbate the problem because it's going to require disclosure of reams of immaterial information. Materiality has long been the standard for dis disclosures under federal securities law. And unfortunately, this rule would require public companies uh, to disclose in their 10Ks all kinds of information that not only is not material to investors, but also confusing and trivial. And the Supreme Court itself, in, in uh, discussing the, the longstanding materiality standard, has said, has said that, you know, um, inundating an investor, a shareholder with uh, mountains of you know, immaterial information is not conducive to informed investor decision making. It can confuse uh, the investor. And and uh, and I think the other thing in terms of um, you got to remember, a lot of this, these ESG funds underperform not only non-ESG funds, but the market as a whole. Um, what we've experienced over the last eight months is a, a pretty tech heavy sell off. Um, these ESG funds are loaded up with tech, uh, but they're light in energy. When energy prices rise like they have, uh, the ESG investors, many of them are unwitting ESG investors because they don't even know what it is, but these institutional investors have put investors in them. They, they've fared uh, worse uh, and their losses are more significant in this sell-off. Um, moreover, a lot of these ESG funds come with much higher fees, which eat into returns as well. The average ESG uh, fund um, uh, comes with about 43% higher fees. So we want to shine the light on ESG and how um, uh, it is a cancer within free enterprise and within, within capitalism. Look, if you are an investor, if you're an owner uh, of a uh, of a, a portfolio of stocks and you care about ESG, then it's your money and you should be able to allocate your capital in accordance with your values. But there should be a default uh, in favor of maximizing returns. That's That should be uh, the uh, default rule. And we want to uh, press legislation that would, that would um, uh, amend the Investor Advisors Act and, the, and ERISA to require uh, investment advisors to prioritize financial performance over non-pecuniary factors like e ESG. Um, I guess the, the for 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 NAMIC members, uh, why is this why is this important? Because the SEC's rule, I think, will compromise um, uh, some of the investment responsibilities of mutual insurance companies to their policyholders. Um, ESG is very distortionary, and if the SEC requires public companies uh, to disclose all this immaterial information, I think it's it's going to be harder for a mutual insurance company to allocate capital in the best interests uh, of the policyholders as opposed to allocating capital in a politicized way. So we we, we want the focus to be on the policyholder, the mutual policyholder, the investor. We want maximum returns um, as opposed to the politicization of capital allocation. Thanks, Congressman. You, you know, you have, do you ever just, yeah, I know you've been uh, at this for a few years now. Do you ever just step back from this and, and ask, you know, how in the world did it become a radical position 
um, for you or others to take to insinuate that the priority of um, investing ought to be in getting returns for those you're investing on behalf of? I mean, it, how how did we get there? Is that kind of an amazing, shouldn't that just be an, an assumed uh, priority for anybody? If, if you give me your money to invest it, that I should have to return, uh, give you a return on that, uh, as opposed to trying to figure out what things you'd like me to fix in the world? Yeah, that's exactly why I call it a cancer. It's a cancer within uh, capitalism, uh, ESG, because uh, the longstanding fiduciary obligation of directors and officers, uh, the fiduciary obligation of investment advisors, asset managers, has always been to maximize shareholder value. And when non-investor, non-owner stakeholder interests trump or preempt the interests of the owners of the company, it becomes very distortionary. Incentives are changed, uh, and um, and 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 the performance of companies uh, is compromised as a result of that because there's a misallocation of resources. Um, so we need to get back to basics. Uh, we want in the next Congress, um, if the American people give us the responsibility to lead in the majority, we're going to refocus the priorities and get back to basics requiring directors and officers to fulfill their fiduciary obligations to shareholders, requiring investment advisors, requiring asset managers, ERISA plan sponsors to be laser focused on returns uh, for uh, their investors. And if an investor, if the, the if an investor wants to allocate his or her capital in a way that doesn't maximize returns, it's their money, they have the ability to do so, but there has to be full disclosure and there has to be written consent uh, that they're going to be allocating their capital in ways that do not maximize returns. There's been a myth perpetuated by the advocates of ESG um, and stakeholder capitalism that um, ESG investing is fully and completely compatible with uh, maximizing returns because, quote unquote, it's the future. But the truth is uh, there is a conflict because of higher fees. And historically, uh, the data bears it out that uh, that there is that there have been lower returns, especially in a in a sell off like the one we've had. And remember, it's kind of investing 101. Jimmy, think about it. Investment one investing 101 has always taught us in diversification. ESG is the idea of concentrating risk in certain politically favored asset classes. Uh, it is totally and wholly inconsistent with the basic fundamentals of, of diversification and investing. And so I think uh, ESG will be um, subject to rigorous scrutiny uh, and justified scrutiny in the coming Congress. And this fad of, of the government through the SEC picking winners and losers in the credit and capital markets, politicizing the allocation of capital um, is going to come under the microscope. The job of the SEC is investor protection. It's not to solve climate change. As important as that issue is, uh, the SEC doesn't have jurisdiction over environmental policy, nor does it have expertise. The American people through the capital markets should be allocating resources uh, as the market uh, decides, not as uh, you know central planners in Washington decide. Congressman, that's um, a refreshing uh, perspective on that topic uh, that we don't hear enough today. Um, you know, and you started actually even looking forward there into maybe next year. And so, you know, as a longtime member 
of the House Financial Services Committee. You know, you clearly understand the critical role the committee plays in impacting policy decisions, and whether it's insurance, banking, housing, monetary policy. Um, and I'm sure it hasn't been easy in the minority for the last few years to um, not be able to have as much say or control over those that policy direction. But if, as uh, some predict, the Republicans reclaim control of the House, and you're in the majority with a enhanced opportunity to impact policy, you know what, what do you think the the broader sort of Republican-led committee agenda will look like next year? And and maybe you kind of highlighted some of your uh, priorities there. But what what do you think the the overall mission of a Republican-led financial services committee mission becomes in a, in a new Congress? Well, I think it's number one, oversight, 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 oversight of the Securities and Exchange Commission, of the prudential bank regulators, uh, of the Federal Reserve on monetary policy and regulatory policy. By the way, uh, I did have, a, I think, a productive exchange with uh, Chairman Jay Powell on the issue of inflation, not just the monetary policy mistakes that he concedes the Fed made over the last year, but I also made the point that the Fed as a as a regulator uh, does have an impact on the supply side. If um, the vice chairman of supervision, Michael Barr, becomes uh, overly aggressive on sidelining capital uh, through um, uh, regulation and supervision of banks, uh, that would have a very negative effect in terms of uh, business investment, uh, access to capital, access to credit, and therefore uh, needed investments to, to repair the supply side. And especially if they politicize bank regulation to redirect capital away from fossil energy at a time where we need more, not less financing of, of energy to lower uh, lower the cost of not just, not just gasoline and uh, home heating costs, but also uh, er every item that goes into the supply chain that's impacted by fuel prices. Uh, the Fed does have a, a role to play. So oversight of all the regulators is number one, what we need to be doing. Um, obviously, then we need to be pushing back against some of these um, ill-advised regulations that um, that are going to disrupt um, the, the capital markets like this SEC ESG climate disclosure rule. Now, de depending on how the outcome of the election goes, even if Republicans take back the House and the Senate, of course, uh, President Biden is there to veto any legislation that we were we would be able to pass and 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 get through a filibuster potentially. Um, so so what do we do in that instance? Well, there's a new tool that the U.S. Supreme Court has given uh, the private sector in pushing back against unaccountable, unelected bureaucrats in the administrative state, in the executive branch, and that's this West Virginia. Uh, versus EPA decision that says for major consequential policy matters, uh, no longer will courts just simply defer to agency action, uh, that uh, the, the courts can invalidate overreaching uh, administrative action like this climate disclosure rule um, if there is not a clear, specific delegation of regulatory authority to that agency by the Congress. And I think it's pretty clear uh, that the Congress did not give the SEC uh, the authority to promulgate this sweeping rule 
that uh, will be incredibly disruptive to the capital markets and not only fail to protect investors, but actually hurt investors uh, in ways that we've already described. Congressman, thank you um, for being so generous with your time. Um, before I, I let you run, one last really hard-hitting question. You know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to visit your congressional district a few times over the years, and it's no secret, it's literally one of the most beautiful in the country. And I think I've heard someone once say your district is famous for you know, horses, gambling, bourbon, and a whole lot of churches. Um, <laughs> so hopefully that balances everything out. Um, so I'd like to end our discussion on one of those topics um, that you might guess, which is bourbon. Um, you know, you have some of the best distilleries in the world in your district, from Woodford Reserve, Buffalo Trace, Four Roses. Um, so most importantly, I know you faced redistricting this year and they redrew the lines. And while I sincerely hope they didn't make your district more difficult for you to get reelected in, um, it feels like it would be devastating if they carved any of those distilleries out of your district. Have they all remained in your district? Well, no, unfortunately, we did lose the Buffalo Trace Distillery uh, in the redistricting uh, as Franklin County and the capital city of Frankfurt moves out of my district because of the growth of population in central Kentucky and the Lexington area. But we will still represent Buffalo Trace for sure. All the great bourbons there, including the signature Buffalo Trace uh, bourbon, uh, Pap the Pappy Van Winkle line, uh, Blanton's. Weller, some of the other great bourbons that that uh, distillery produces, but we will still represent in our district uh, Wild Turkey, Four Roses, Woodford Reserve, Castle and Key, a number of other distilleries, and we pick up a few distilleries as well in in, in Mercer County. So we'll still be the bourbon capital uh, of the world, and we'll work with all of the distilleries on the bourbon trail. And uh, the great thing about all of these industries is. Uh, we need insurance, uh, and uh, your industry, uh, you know, serves every and touches every industry, and uh, the bourbon industry, the horse industry, uh, they are heavily insured industries. Um, and uh, with with any businesses uh, like uh, these industries, our signature industries, bourbon and horses, there's risk, and that's why we need good insurance to back up our our signature industries. That's a that's a great way for us to uh, exit, Andy. Uh, I'm glad that all of those industries need insurance. And uh, if Congress and Washington keep heading down the path they're on, we may need more bourbon in our industry as well. So <laughs> maybe it's a, a fair exchange there. Uh, there you go. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with us and our members today. Uh, we appreciate it a lot. You, you've been a great friend to our industry over the years, and we're, we're grateful for uh, your time today as well. So thank you, sir. Thanks, Jimmy, and uh, cheers to NAMIC, and uh, we appreciate the relationship uh, with you all and appreciate everything you all do for our economy. And that's a wrap for this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate your support. And a special thanks again to our sponsor, New England Asset Management. Insurance Uncovered will be back again on September 7th with more insurance news and insights from industry experts. So until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a wonderful day.